You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Um, don't you love March Madness? It's crazy. My team's out. but And then there's some of you in this room today who your teams are playing each other. So good luck with that. Uh, should be good. Um, I've had glasses now for almost 30 years. Um, and last year, I don't know, it's like a year and a half ago, I started noticing like when I was trying to see what was on TV, uh, it wasn't working very well, which may have been the Lord just trying to tell me, stop watching TV. Um, but I was literally having to like stand in the middle of the room and squint. Oh yeah, there it is. And it's even worse if you're looking at that stupid Netflix menu. How on earth a human is supposed to be able to read that? I don't know. But so I went to the optometrist for my exam and I explained what was going on. And she said, yeah, so here's the thing. Um, the last few years, your vision has been getting progressively worse, but we've left you in the same prescription, um, hoping that maybe your eyes would actually improve, get stronger. I did not know this. Maybe you didn't either, but supposedly in your forties, people's eyes are known for getting better. So I explained to her, yeah, I don't really care about that. I'm not interested I just want to see. Um, So whatever the greatest, best, strongest prescription is, you can give me, that's the one that I want. She said, okay. So I want to make sure you understand though, you will be able to see so clear in the, the distance, it'll be magnificent. But up close, things are going to get funny. And I know there are some of you in this room that over the next like two minutes, you're going to be going, he needs progressives. Somebody should tell him he should get progressives. I know. It'll happen. Leave me alone. It'll come with time. But the compromise was you're not going to be able to see well up close. And some of you really, really discerning people may have noticed over the last year, when I start to read my Bible on Sundays up here, I usually have to like take my glasses off, which is the opposite of what most people are doing. For a few weeks after that, I tried the whole like look under my glasses thing And after about the third time that I almost passed out and threw up while I was up here, I thought, that's probably not a good idea. Now, in contrast, if I'm wearing my contacts because they have not raised my prescription, um, I actually have to use readers while I'm reading. So depending on what day you see me, I could confuse the heck out of you into like, why does he even need glasses? Does he know what he's even doing Um, the important thing for me personally is that I can see. And some days I have to decide, is it more important for me to be able to see really clear off in the distance? Or is it more important for me to be able to see up close? And then, of course, there are other days that the situations and circumstances basically demand you really better be able to see both. Why? Because vision is important. And vision, as we talk about it personally, we're very, very simply just talking about the ability to see. But when we talk about vision for a business or an organization or, or for your family, or let's get even more important for the most important organization on the face of the earth, the church, 
when we're talking about vision in those terms, we're talking about the ability to think about or to plan for the future with wisdom. It's the ability to be able to see far enough in the distance to know where you're being led and where you're headed, but to also be able to back up and know these are the steps we need to take now in order to get ourselves there. In in understanding that we're spending an entire morning talking about vision, somebody might want to ask, well, hey, wouldn't it be more important to talk about courage? Don't we need to talk about things like unity? Absolutely, we do. But what we sometimes fail to realize is that those things, courage, unity, and others, they come with vision. When people are walking together very purposefully, courage, unity, those things come. To give you a little bit of clarity in the difference and this importance of vision, I want to start this morning by taking a look at two people, Joshua and Moses. When you think about Joshua, most of us who are, we've read the stories and the scriptures, when we think about Joshua, the first thing that usually comes to mind is Jericho. Here's this guy, he led God's people across the river, um, led them to defeat Jericho. If you want to think about it in kind of higher level terms though, Joshua led God's people where Moses wasn't allowed to go. Moses, because of one act of sinful, defiant rebellion was not allowed to go into the promised land. And so here enters Joshua, and God gave him great courage to lead. But it's not insignificant that when you read the events of Joshua chapter 1, they all take place right after Moses died. In fact, if you look in the book of Joshua... Look what it says, verse 1, chapter 1. The whole book begins with the words, after the death of Moses. It's not not insignificant that all this took place right after Moses died. Why? Well, because Moses led the people faithfully over time in such a way that not only was this young man prepared to lead, but that a nation was ready to follow that young man across the river, defeat Jericho, and take the promised land. So Moses' leadership, his faithfulness, his vision brought the people to this place. And then after Moses died, all of this came to fruition. Well, what happened after Joshua died? We're not really that familiar, are we? Well, if you turn one book over into Judges, interestingly enough, the book of Judges begins with the words, after Joshua died. Go one chapter in. You go to chapter 2, verse 8, and look at, it, look at what it says. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. I don't want to go that long, just... Just saying. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance. Verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Joshua's entire generation passed away. And now look at what it says next. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord 
or the work that he had done for Israel. Joshua and his generation all died off, and that quickly, the next generation that came behind them did not know the Lord or even what God had done on their behalf. How on earth does that happen? Well, let me say this. It takes courage to start well, but it takes vision to keep going and finish well. Moses had a big hiccup in the middle, but Moses finished faithfully and led the people where he was supposed to. Church family, we do not ever want to be in a place where it will be possible that a generation of us would die off and the next generation not know our God and his faithfulness. Yes, you need courage to start well, but you need vision to keep going. Vision brings conviction. Vision brings those things where there is vision. There is direction and courage and passion and purpose and unity. Over the last two or three years of my life, um, as I look back, the Lord walked me through what I now refer to as the valley of vision. And it was interesting at the beginning of those two or three years, some friends of mine, Mike and Mary Wagner, who partner with us with E3, they actually sent me a book called The Valley of Vision. Um, like somehow they knew that I needed this book. But I began to deal head on with changes that I knew that we needed to make as a church, that I needed to make as a pastor. And um, this was not something that I voluntarily asked the Lord for. And so he had to walk me there. And I will tell you that during some of that time, um, that valley got really, really low and very lonely at times. So much so that by 2018, I really assertively began asking God, get me out of this valley. Let's, let's move on. It's been great and all, but I'm ready to go back up the mountain. And God very, very mercifully began walking me back out of that, but not without very clearly showing me, um, leading me into saying, you need to be able to turn around and understand everything that I've walked you through here, why I've walked you through it, what it means for you, what it means for my church. And so last year I began praying, Lord, this rather unique year, 2020, is coming. And call me sentimental or loony, but is there ever in the course of history a, another more appropriate time to ask God for clarity and vision than when 2020 is coming? I don't think so. 2020 is approaching. Our 20th anniversary as a church was rapidly approaching, has now passed us. My 10-year anniversary as the pastor here was coming. I just began asking God, Lord, as we are getting to this crossroad, please give me vision for our church for the next 20 years because I don't want to just wander out in the middle of the ocean. Let's get our feet moving on purpose for your kingdom. 
And in the midst of this, I started asking this question. I think that we've asked the question a lot, like, would, what, if, what would happen if our church disappeared? Would the community even miss us? Would, would we want the community to miss us? Well, duh, of course we would. But if we get a little bit more specific, I began asking myself, if our church just disappeared off the face of the earth, how would we want to be remembered in this community? What, what gigantic hole would be left? And the thing that I kept coming back to over and over and over again, as cliche or as elementary as it may sound, all I could come back to is, Lord, I will want our church to be known simply for this. They made disciples of Jesus Christ. There's only so much room to put something on a tombstone, right? That's probably on purpose. Now, granted, I, I, I want people to know they fed the hungry. Um, they went to the nations with the gospel. They loved one another. Man, did they love one another. But everything that they did was rooted in this calling to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And there's a gigantic hole left where they were accomplishing this as God's followers, as his church, as his people. And so in light of this, I I began asking the Lord, okay, Lord, how do we carry this out? And over the last year, there's been a lot of discussion and prayer with our pastors and elders and talking through this with our staff. And again, there's been constant and continual affirmation over, here's what I'm calling you to do. Here's why I'm calling you to do it. And here's how we're going to make this happen. And I want to share some of that with you this morning. I I want to preface before I go forward in saying um, what I'm going to share with you this morning is by absolutely no means all that God is going to call us to over the next 20 years. No way. But this is going to drive a great deal of what we do and why we do it. Let me also say, to discern what needs to be, you have to take an actual honest look at what actually is, right? And and we're not very, very good at that because we don't like, at times, hearing the hard word. We don't like hearing the truth about things. Um, But we have to, in order to know what changes need to be made, where do I need to go from here? You've got to know where you are. And so in understanding that, um, I I want to talk about things this morning in in terms of our church family internally, uh, our church family in reaching our community, and then our calling to reach the nations with the gospel. And as we begin and we talk about our church here internally, Um, And that calling, that mandate that we have to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Let me acknowledge to you that in our culture, we have a term that I think we've made synonymous to a degree with making disciples. That term is leader development. And I'm not telling you that that's right, wrong, bad, good, fair, unfair, whatever. It it is what it is. Um, But leader development, I mean, think about it for a moment. Leader development is a person who is leading taking another person or persons 
who have leadership capacity or ability and saying, let me show you how to lead. Let me see you do it and then turn them loose to do it. Let me give you a hint. That's making disciples. That's what Jesus did with these 12 men. So we're going to talk about these terms sort of synonymously this morning. With that said, I want to tell you this morning that when it comes to leader development as a church, we have been fair to mediocre. You are right in not applauding, okay? Um, We've been pretty good. I'm going to give us a pretty good at first-generation leader development or disciple-making. And and again, before we want to like pat ourselves on the back or high-five one another, we need to be aware of the fact that the problem with this is in the kingdom of God, there actually is no such thing. There is no such thing as one generation of disciples in the kingdom of God. And, And so because of this, because of the mandate on us as God's people, everything that we do, and I mean everything, should be rooted in or catalyzed by that calling to make disciples, to reproduce the life of Jesus in someone else as it's being refined in me. Use that as a definition for some direction on what it means to make disciples, to reproduce the life of Jesus in someone else as it is continually being refined in me. Leader development or making disciples is not to say to somebody, oh, hey, I've got it made. I figured it all out. Now let me show you. No, it is walk with me as I'm walking with the Lord. But everything that we do by very nature and definition of making disciples means there will be multiple generations. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, what we refer to as the Great Commission, Jesus took those 11 men that were left that he had invested three years of his life in, and he said to them, men, as you go, as you walk through life, make disciples. This is the calling I am placing on you. Well, if you look with me in 2 Timothy for a moment, 2 Timothy, this is near the end of the New Testament. This is very, very likely the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. He wrote it to his disciple, Timothy, who is currently at this, the time of the writing of this letter, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Paul says to him in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Timothy, what you have heard from me, okay, so visualize here, here's Paul, here's Timothy. Timothy, what you have heard and learned from me, Paul says to him, entrust that to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. If you're thinking, I think we've heard this verse before. Oh, yes, we have. This is Paul saying to Timothy, you and I, Timothy, we ought to be able to see four generations of disciples within the church. Four. Not one. 
Not even two or three, but four. Paul is audacious. That's why we like Paul. Paul has the kind of faith that you and I want to have. Church family, in understanding not only Jesus' command, but Paul's instructions, we are very determined that over the next five years, we are going to build a multi-generational, multi-faceted pipeline of disciple-making. That's really what we're here to do. Now, how exactly are we going to see all of that happen? I'm not quite sure yet. This is one of the reasons it was priority one for us to call Dusty Fowler onto our team to be our new connection pastor. Looking very forward to you meeting him and getting to know him over the weeks to come. Um, We believe this is priority one. Us reproducing Christ in others. But because of this, we, we can't specifically yet say, what is all that going to look like? But I do believe that I can tell you five years from now, what will be some of the evidences that this is taking place here at the brook? First of all, I don't think it is anywhere beyond reason to say that five years from now, we ought to see 60, 65, 75 missional communities attached to this church. And so that you have some ability to relate, well, where are we now? We've got like 14. So we're talking about a big number. Don't see any reason why that shouldn't happen though. Now let's make sure that we understand that not all missional communities should be 25, 35, 45 people, which we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Um, There may be six people who have begun to walk together on mission for the sake of the kingdom of God, and they are living in missional community together. You don't have to have 36 people. It might be six. It might be four. It might be 10. But we need to see that happen. Um, We also are going to see a great expansion of the on-ramps to get people not only into community, but into disciple-making relationships whether that is through us doing Bible studies or theology classes, or honestly, one of the greatest ways that we ever see people connect with one another and begin growing is people who are serving together, inside or outside the church. But it's crazy what happens when two followers of Jesus begin serving anywhere together. The Lord seems to somehow use that to electrify those people. So there are going to be more and more ways that you see this happen. But let me say this. It, it is essential that our missional community leaders, that our youth workers, that people even working in the tech booth, that connection team members, that Brook kids teachers, that coordinators, I really don't care what you're doing in every single thing that we do, Making disciples and raising up the next generation has to be priority one. See, here's the simplicity. Hey, I run the sound for the kids on Sunday morning. I want you to come watch me run the sound. And then I'm going to show you how to run the sound. And then you're going to run the sound and I'm going to watch and make sure you don't jack things up too bad. And then once you're ready, I'm going to turn you loose to run sound. That's disciple making. 
hey, you're a new believer. You, you haven't studied God's word before. I've been studying God's word for like 15 years. I haven't got it perfected, but why don't you meet with me once a week and I'm going to show you how to study God's word. That's disciple making. Let's get real practical. There are some of you mothers in this room who, let's just be clear, we could consider you a pro. Like you've gotten your kids out and gone. They lived uh, and you survived. Well, there are other mothers and fathers right now who are still going, dear Lord, I may not make it. The kids may not make it. One of us may not make it. That young mother would probably give her weight in gold if you just met with her once a week and said, hey, I know right now you think you're going to pull your hair out and you're not going to survive this. You will. Why don't I go to the grocery store with you and show you how I did this? I know that doesn't sound like disciple-making, but that's disciple-making. Investing your life into someone else, reproducing what the Lord has done in you while God is still doing in you. Paul was very audacious when he said in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We need to be as audacious as Paul. Let's talk about our community for a moment. The Lord has continued to bring our church back to this issue of feeding the hungry. In fact, I think it is almost inappropriate to say he keeps bringing us back. It's more like God won't let us leave this issue. And I know you're aware of this, but I think it's worth reminding us there is no basic human need that is greater than our hunger and thirst. And what we've seen happen over and over and over again is when you have the ability to meet someone's physical need, you are so very often given the opportunity to meet their even greater spiritual need. And we believe that's the business we are to be about. Church family, over the next 10 years, um, we're going to be on a mission to completely eradicate hunger from the home and life of every family in our city. Every one of them. We have the resources and the wealth and the intelligence that we send people to the moon. The moon. We're talking right now, the vice president was here this week to talk about how the moon's great and we're going back, but now we're going to aim for Mars. I am all over that. But if we can send somebody to the moon, do you not think that we can fill up their pantry? I think it's just going to require some determination and working together. You may not know this, but in December, our main partner in this fight in this city, Inside Out Ministries closed its doors. And when that happened, many of us who were in this conversation spent about this much time thinking and talking, maybe we should pray about trying to bridge that gap or fill that need. And God very quickly um, shut us down as if to say, wait a minute, you think you need to pray about this? 
What have I not already made clear? Bridge the gap, fill the void. Yes, you are called to do this. Here's the thing about it though. The gap is bigger than just treating the symptoms. If you don't believe that handing out band-aids is easy, go home and get a box and hand them out. It's real easy. We really, really like to hand out band-aids. We like to just temporarily put a, a, a thing on the, on the wound that makes us feel better and maybe gives the person the idea that, okay, everything's fixed. Often this is not the case. We don't need to just keep treating the symptoms. We need to obliterate the causes. And part of feeding and eliminating hunger is to heal the brokenness that keeps perpetuating it. And so understanding this, we've got to stop just helping people prune their little problem branches. And we've got to help them learn to pick up an axe and take the axe to the root of the problem. What this is going to mean for us as the church is we're going to have to get a lot more comfortable with helping people with their mental and their emotional health. This is why, even if it makes you uncomfortable, uh, I just get up here very often and feel that I need to be very vulnerable and honest with you about what I have walked through because I believe many of you are walking through it, but you just don't know what to do with it. Friends, the people that come in here off the street that need help, man, they're dealing with stuff. We've got to be able to get in the dirt and help people with their broken marriages. We've got to take the time and the energy to help people really begin to understand how to manage their finances. We had a man, we've had a man drive down our driveway very, very recently in a two-year-old Chevy Tahoe that walked in here and told us, I don't have food for my kids. Let me say two things about that. Number one, I actually believe him. I believe that he did not have food for his kids. But what I also believe is this man has not learned how to manage what's been entrusted to him. That there are times when these things I don't need have to go so that I can take care of these things that I do need. It goes back to what we were talking about last week with the inability that we have very often to distinguish want from need. We have to be able to sit down at a table across from somebody every once in a while with a pencil and paper and say, you don't have money for that. We've got to be able to get into the dirt of people's lives. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25 when you saw someone and they were hungry and you fed them. When you saw them naked, when when they were freezing and you gave them a coat. When you went and you visited them in prison. What did Jesus say? Did he say when you did that and you met the need, you were my hands and feet? No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, when you've done any of those things to the least of these, you've done them to me. So friends, in thinking about that, I'll just say to you this morning, I want to minister to Jesus every chance that I get. That's what we're called to. In James chapter two, James said, if you see someone who's hungry and they need clothing and you say, hey man, hope you have a great day, peace out. 
and you don't do anything to meet their need and you can, James says, your faith is worthless. That's not what we're about here. As the people of God, it is going to be our priority to feed hunger, to heal hurt, and to be hope. When you and I do these things, we are the living hope of Christ to those who have no hope. We've got to be about that. Now let's talk about our world for a moment. God is very actively and powerfully moving and working in the countries of India and Nepal. These two countries that God has not only put one right on top of the other, but here are these two countries right one on top of the other where God has placed a quarter of the people on the planet. Right there. Right now, India and Nepal together probably are about 3% Christian. And that statistic is probably liberal. However, I will tell you that if you looked at that stat even 20 years ago, it was probably somewhere around 1% collectively. God is powerfully and visibly moving and working in both of these countries. And so because of all of the circumstances involved in this church family, over the next 20 years, as we continue to partner with E3, and as we are beginning to partner with Mountain Child in Nepal, we are not only going to be praying, we are going to be working to see God over the next 20 years take those two countries with the gospel for the kingdom. And to make sure that you're not misunderstanding me, we are praying and working to see by the year 2040, a tipping point way tipped over where the gospel is beginning to saturate those two countries. Because let's make no mistake, If God's put a quarter of the people on the face of the earth right there and those two countries begin to be consumed with the gospel, it will change the entire world. And I believe Jesus in Matthew 24, 14, when he said that this gospel will go out to all the nations and then the end will come. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for him to come. Let's move this along by our obedience. So let's get to the tough question. What's all this going to require of us? We're not, we don't have a clapper. Um, we're not going to magically wish it happens. It's going to require something of us to see these things happen. That over the next five years, we become very purposeful in that everything we do is about making disciples. Over 10 years to eradicate hunger from our community. Over 20 years to see the gospel completely saturate the countries of India and Nepal. What's this going to require of us? First of all, we must grow. We have got to grow. We have got to push to our limits, and then we've got to push past our limits. We've got to stretch past our comforts. This means that for some of us who have maybe never begun faithfully and obediently giving back 
to the work of the ministry of the church, you need to begin. Not because we need your money. We don't. You need to be obedient and watch God's faithfulness. There are some of us who have been reading, learning, studying the Bible for 5, 10, 15, 20 years of our life. It's time you begin teaching somebody else. Maybe there's somebody else that you need to teach are two-year-olds. But maybe they're 20-year-olds. Maybe they're 42-year-olds. I don't know. It doesn't mean that you necessarily need to get up in front of a class with a whiteboard. It may mean that you meet somebody at Starbucks or in your living room for crying out loud and you just walk through the scriptures together. But a lot of us, I mean, if you like know where the book of Zechariah is, that's one indicator. If you've read Habakkuk, I mean, I could go down the list. Some of you, the training wheels, it, they, they came off a long time ago, and you don't even realize you are cruising. Bring somebody else along. For some of us in these missional communities that have 25, 35, 40 people, and every time we got everybody together in our MC, like the front door might explode off, it's really time that we begin praying about God multiplying us out for the sake of reaching others. We've got to grow. It's got to happen. We also have to build. We have to build, church family. We've got to make room for more people and for more ministry. Um, I know that a lot of what I'm about to say to you, for many of you, this is like old news, but it needs to be said. The building that we're in right this moment is about to fall apart. Well, hey, let's give it uh, a round of applause, you know, silently. It's lived 18 of its 20 years of life expectancy. It's made it further than a whole lot of people expected it to. It's Joshua dying at 110, okay? But it's not just about that this building is about to fall apart. Um, We need bigger, more effective worship space for more reasons than we can go into this morning. Um, Our staff, quite frankly, needs a space where we can more effectively and collaboratively work together. Our kids and our students not only need more space to grow, they need space that's separated from one another. Let me share with you some great news in all of this. While some of our buildings and our facilities um, need to be replaced, some of them may be even condemned, not all of them do. And let me give you some examples. The building that you walked through to come in here this morning, not only do we need to get our preschoolers out of it because they need more effective space to be able to be taught and led and move on Sunday mornings, we need to get them out of that building because our vision is that we are going to see that building used as a hub in our city to feed hunger heal hurt, and to meet the needs of broken people. We want to use that building effectively. This building next door to us, um, while our kids and our students meet in there at different times during the week, 
we believe that through some very, very simple remodeling and finally finishing the um, largest storage area in the entire continental United States, the upstairs, through some very, very simple work, we will be able to turn that building into not just an office building, but a place where our staff and our leadership can much more effectively, collaboratively, efficiently work together, where we can counsel, where we can carry out what the Lord has called us to do here together. And some of our staff, of course, would say, and also be able to go to the bathroom without having to leave the building. Low on the priority list, I know for many of you, a little higher for some of them, chip included. Um, We have sensed very, very clearly, and, and some of you by this point, I believe are probably deducing this. God is calling us to stay right here. Um, I believe that the Lord has affirmed to us in more ways than we know to explain this morning. He has said, I've got you here for a reason. You've got the land. You've got some of the buildings. You've got the resources. We are in an awesome position to grow and to build. And so in light of this, over the past few months, we, and by we, um, I will go ahead and say read specifically, but we, I'll jump in there with him. We've been working very, very diligently to present you with a master site plan very, very soon for what it looks like for us to grow and to build and to reach our city over the next 20 years and beyond that if Christ doesn't come back first. And I will tell you that with very, very deep conviction, we believe that now is the time to step forward in faith and see this happen. We've got to grow. We've got to build. And let me finish by saying this. We also must send. We are called to equip everyday missionaries, but also to send gospel partners. And, you know, it's interesting that God just over the last six, eight, nine months sent Chad out to take over this church in our own city. And um, I still get the the great gift of being able to, I eat lunch with Chad at least once a month and still walking with him. Um, God is going to work through our church to plant churches. There are places in more rural areas of Alabama church family, where there is no gospel-centered church. Now, you could say, well, but you can look in any direction and see a steeple. Sure. But the gospel isn't there. We're going to plant churches. We're going to go to the nations. This is going to mean that many of us may need to go for seven to 10 days. Some of you need to pack a bag and you need to go because at this point, you're scared to death to share the gospel. I I just want to tell you this morning, if you step out in faith and you go to India with E3 to share the gospel, you will come back a dynamo for sharing your faith. Some of you need to go simply because the Lord is nudging you and urging you to go. Um, We need to go because we need to go out into the field and encourage the people who have given their lives and they're there. It's impossible for us to understand what it does for somebody when we show up and we bring this little bit of home to them 
and, and maybe a box of granola bars with it. It's like a breath of fresh air and new life. Some of us need to pack a bag and we need to go. Some of you have already answered that call and you're going to go to Guatemala this summer or maybe even India. God is going to change your life and your worldview through it. But let me step out further on the limb and say this. Some of us are going to need to go for good. There are going to be people within our church family and maybe even some of you sitting right here this morning who you may not even be here to see God fulfill everything that we've been talking about today because he's going to call you to go. It may mean pack everything. It may mean sell everything to go to a people that you have not yet met who live in a place where you have never been, but because you know the gospel must go and God's calling me to take it. We will cry with you. We will help you pack or sell everything. We will pray over you, but we will with great delight and joy send you out as partner in the gospel. When Chicago burned to the ground in the late 1800s, we call it the Great Chicago Fire. The chief architect they brought in was a guy named Daniel Berman. And before they got started, Berman stood before everybody who was going to be involved in the process. And he gave them this exhortation. He said, let's make no small plans, for they have no ability to stir men's blood. I am praying that God is stirring your blood. But not for the rebuilding of a city. For the advancing of his kingdom. We're not here to rebuild a city. We're here to bring the kingdom of God and to be the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. You go and make disciples. We want to faithfully answer that call, share the gospel, carry the hope of Christ together. What a great gift we've been given. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning, we are so incredibly humbled to be your people to be a, a part of the body of Christ, the church. And Lord, this morning we acknowledge, even though most of us sitting in this room today haven't been here um, for the duration of the life of this church, God, you have faithfully led this church for 20 years and we are praying that you would continue to faithfully lead us for 20 more. Lord, this morning we pray that you would give us vision, yes, as a church, but vision for our homes, Lord, vision for our families, vision for our lives. Lord, as the Apostle Paul said, what an eternally significant thing to hear you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. 
Lord, we want to shepherd and steward well. Lord Jesus, we proclaim this morning that you are the King of kings. You are Lord of lords. You are the Prince of peace. Your name is above all names. You are the Lamb of God that was slain for the sin of the world. You are our reason for life and hope. We worship you. Let's stand together and continue to worship. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.